Uh, If you've got your message notes out, we're finishing this series, Breaking Free. Uh, We've been looking at all the different areas of our life that we want to break free from because 2020 is a year of God's favor. We're going to talk about that uh, next week. Uh, 2020 is a year where God wants to give you some things. He wants to put some things in your hand that you're going to love, by the way. You're going to love what God has for you this year. God, for some of you, has an incredible marriage. He wants to restore, put together. Uh, For some of you, he's got breakthroughs in business or things in your health or family. But God has some amazing things for you in 2020. The problem for many of us is our hands are full. So even though God wants to, to put some things into your hand, he can't because your hands are full. We've got we to gotta make some room. We've got to clear your hands out a little bit uh, from some of the stuff that's holding you back. And a lot of us, what's in our hands is our past. You know, we're holding on to the past. We're holding on to, to past pain, past abuse, past heartache, uh, unforgiveness. Uh, some of us have addictions or habits or issues that are just slowing us down. And so what we want to do is break free of the past so that we can embrace the future in everything God has for us in 2020. We're looking at this passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. You need to know that there are weapons available for you. Uh, Many believers don't understand that you've got a weapon that you can use, a weapon. And not just any weapon, but a weapon that is actually mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. So a stronghold is what we've been looking at this entire series. A stronghold is an area of your life. And I believe all of us have an area that we know that if this wasn't in my life, my life would be better. If I could stop doing that, or if I didn't do this as much, or if I could get that under control, my marriage would be better. My business life would be better. Life would just be better if this wasn't a part of my life. Those are strongholds. And I'm here today to tell you there are weapons available to you that God has made available to you that are mighty and breaking those down. And it doesn't matter how long it's been a part of your life, how long you've been dealing with it, how deep you feel like it is, uh, what your family history looks like, God's weapons are mighty to break the stronghold in your life. And what we discovered week one is these strongholds actually come out of lies. Uh, Satan doesn't have the power to touch you. Like so many people say, Satan's beating me up. No, he's not. Satan doesn't have the power to lay a hand on you. The only thing Satan can do to you is lie to you. And if you believe the lie, you end up hurting yourself. The reason we have strongholds in our life is we believe a lie, and the lie puts us into bondage. And the truth is, at any given time, we could walk away if we want to walk away. The only reason we stay in bondage, we stay in the addiction, we stay in the habit, we stay doing that which I don't want to do is because we bought into a lie. We use the illustration week one of an elephant tied to a rope. You ever ever seen an elephant tied to a rope, you know, with a wooden stake in the ground? How many of you know that elephant could walk away anytime he wants to walk away? The elephant is stronger than the rope. The elephant is stronger than the stake. The problem is he doesn't believe he can. You see, the elephant stays in bondage because he believes the lie that the rope is stronger than him. And the only reason many of us stay in a bondage or stay in a stronghold or stay in an issue is because we believe that is stronger than us, that that we can't break free. The truth is God's weapons are mighty to break free. And so we've been looking at the three big areas that Satan uses, pride. We dealt with that a couple weeks ago, the root of, of pride, how it manifests an addiction in our life. We looked at lust last week, very Critical message, especially for single people and young people. Uh, We looked at the sexual lies of our culture. It was a very PG-13 message. But if you're single, if you're a teenager, if you have teenagers, 
pay them to watch the message. I mean, they, they need to watch that message and understand the truth about God's, God's view of sexuality because we're hearing the exact opposite in the world today. And it's, and it's breaking America right now, by the way. It, you know, we looked at last week, it's not an issue of right and wrong. Sex is not an issue of right and wrong, sin and not sin. Sex, sex is an issue of God's way works and the world's way hurts. That's the issue. The world's way creates scars and wounds and hurts and pain in your life. And so we want to learn to do it God's way, not because it's right, but because it works. Today, we're going to look at the number one prayer request we get every single week. I read all the prayer cards that come in on a weekly basis, and I pray over them. And over the course of a year, the number one prayer request we get, we want to deal with today. Because what we're asked to pray for more than anything else is money. It's money. It's, it's the number one thing. I lost my job. I need a job. I need a promotion. I need a raise. We need an investor to come through. We need financing. We need to sell a house. We need to buy a house. It's always money. The number one issue is money. And so the question today is, could there be a lie around money that keeps people in bondage in the area of money, that creates financial strongholds in people's life? And the answer is yes. You see, what many people don't realize, especially a lot of Christians don't realize this, money is spiritual. It is absolutely spiritual. Money has a spirit on it. And I know you don't like it when I say this. I've, I've said this before, and many of you get really offended when I say it because you really don't want to believe it's true. But the fact is, it's absolutely true. The way you handle your credit card is just as much part of your Christian faith as the way you read your Bible and pray. There is no different. Reading the Bible is not more spiritual than the way you handle your credit card. Let me put it like that. The way you spend your money, your financial priorities, we, it is all part of our faith journey. And God doesn't look at certain parts of our faith journey as more important than other parts of our faith journey. So handling our money is just as important to God as our prayer life and, and our time in God's word. It's all the same because money is spiritual. So we're going to look at some of the lies that surround money. Jesus put it like this in Luke chapter 16. He goes, I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon. He uses this word mammon three times. It's, it's the God over money. I know some Bible translations uh, use the word money here instead of mammon. I like the New King James because it uses the, the literal Greek text that says mammon, and I'll explain that to you in a moment. He goes, that when you fail, that means expire or die, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Now, that can be a little confusing. It's an incredible principle. We don't have time to, to really go there today, but it simply means that God can take your money and use it to bring people to heaven. Like when you give to evangelistic causes, when you give to a local church, when you give to the work of God, God can take your money, use it to bring people to Christ so that when you die, there are people in heaven that are going to welcome you because of the money you use that changed their life. For example, those of you who tithe to our church, every week there are people who make decisions to follow Christ. Well, those of you who tithe, when you get to heaven, those people are going to welcome you into heaven because your tithe was part of bringing them to Christ. And that's all Jesus is saying here. It's a powerful principle. He goes on to say, he who is faithful, now remember he's talking about money, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. So if God can trust you with a little bit of money, God can trust you with more. 
He who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, second time he uses the word, the Bible only uses it four times, the other time it's quoting this passage, who will commit to your trust true riches? So if you're not, if you're not good with money, how will God trust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, what this is talking about clearly is the tithe. Because the Bible is, is, is crystal clear. The tithe does not belong to us. It belongs to God. It, it's, it's Jesus's. And so he's saying, if you're not faithful with what belongs to another person, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve both God and and mammon. There's two choices here. There's no third option. It's God or it's mammon, but you cannot serve both. So what is this word mammon? Well, the word mammon comes from the a very ancient uh, Syriac word. It's uh, In the Greek, it's mammonis. And there was not an English word to translate it into. And so what the New King James did is what they call a transliteration. It's where they make up a brand new English word to represent a Greek word that they did not have in the English language. So it's the Greek word mammonis, and we now get the English word Mammon. And it's an ancient Syrian word. It's actually the Syrian god of riches is what the word is. It's the god that rests over money or it's the spirit that rests over money. It comes from ancient Babylon. Now, if you know anything about Babylon, Babylon wasn't just a nation in the Bible. It was actually a spirit too. Babylon, the word Babylon literally means sown in confusion. And this is the God, Mammon, that comes from ancient Babylon. It's a God that is over money. It's a God that comes from the meaning sown in confusion. Now, let me say this. Many people today have a financial mindset that is sown in confusion. They have a financial understanding that is absolutely confused. That's why we see the most problems revolve around Money, because we're confused about money. Money is one of the number one causes of divorce in America. Debt is killing families. There's a financial mindset in regards to money that is confused. Our government has a financial mindset that is absolutely confused about money. Let me reduce it like this. If our government handled money like an individual family, this, this is what the government is doing on an annual basis. It would, it would be as if your family made $50,000 a year, spent $80,000 a year, and then borrowed an additional $200,000 a year. How many of you know that won't work. Yet we have a mindset that is confused and people will say, let's try it again. Let's, let, it's a great idea. Let's keep doing it. How I many know it's confused? There is a financial mindset over America today that is an absolute lie. Mammon is a spirit, the false god of riches. Satan operates with the spirit of mammon. This is why Jesus calls him a thief, a thief. In fact, if you study Revelations chapter 13, mammon is the spirit the Antichrist uses to rule the world. 
When the Antichrist rises to power in the end times, the Antichrist isn't going to rule the world through nuclear threat or military force. The Antichrist rules the world through financial insecurity. You have to take the mark of the beast to be able to buy food for your family. It's the spirit of mammon. It's the spirit of a fear over money. And we see this in America today. There was a book that came out about 10 years ago called The Day America Told the Truth. Uh, Very interesting book that was written where where they took these anonymous surveys and got people to give just brutal, honest truth about how they actually felt about all different issues. One of the questions in one of the sections of the book, the question was this, what would you be willing to do for $10 million? Like America, what would you do for $10 million? Here's some of the answers. 25% of the people said they would abandon their entire family for $10 million. This is the truth. 23% of people said they would become a prostitute for a week or more for $10 million. 16% would give up their American citizenship. 10% would withhold testimony, letting a murderer go free. 7% would kill a complete stranger. Watch out, America. 3% would put their own children up for adoption. Some of you are saying, I don't need $10 million to do that. I'll pay you. (laughs) You can have them. I mean, if you know, all money has a spirit on it. It's the spirit of mammon or the spirit of God. Jesus says you're serving one or the other. You cannot serve both. So all of the money right now in your bank account, all of the money in your investments, all of the money in your stock portfolio, all of the money that you have to your name right now currently either has the spirit of God resting on it or it has the spirit of mammon resting on it. There's one or the other. There's no in between. There's no such thing as neutral money. It's either the spirit of God, the spirit of mammon, and it's not both. Jesus says you cannot serve both. And I'm going to show you today how to get God's spirit on your money. Because the problem with mammon is mammon lies to you. Mammon makes false promises. You've all heard the voice of mammon. Mammon actually speaks to you like the Holy Spirit. You've all heard his voice. How many have ever heard that voice in your head, if only you had more money? Ever hear that? If you had more money, you'd have a better marriage. If you had more money, this problem would be solved. If you had more money, this would be fixed. If you just had more money, how many know Jesus never told anybody on earth, your problem is you just need more money? He never said, it was never more, it was faith. It was always faith. It wasn't more money. See, mammon is a false God. Mammon promises you what only God can deliver. Mammon wants to take the place of God in your life. That's why Jesus said he's the number one competitor for your heart. So let's look at, before we get into solving the problem, let's look at the lies of mammon. We've got we've to we've break the lie of mammon. Here's the first lie of mammon. Mammon says, money will make me secure. Like the more money you have, the more secure you will be. You can actually, mammon tells you, you can actually save your way to security. We have a term for it in America. It's called what? Financially? Financially secure, huh? Somebody said independent. They got it wrong. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, John. We have a term called financially secure. Being, being fin- ha- having financial security. Can I tell you, financial security is an absolute lie. It's a myth. It doesn't exist. It, it's a falsehood. It's not real. In fact, the wealthiest person to ever live on the face of the earth, King Solomon, said this, the wealth of the rich is there 
fortified city. I don't know about you. I don't want my money to be my protection. I want God to be my protection. They imagine it. Why do they imagine it? Because it's not real. Because it's a false reality. It's not true. It's a lie. It's a myth. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. So they believe if I can just save enough money, I'll be financially secure. I'll be safe. I'll be protected. Nothing can ever touch me, but it's a lie. Look, if financial security was true, let me ask you a question. How much money would you need to secure your future against all imaginable eventualities? How much? What's the dollar figure? Have you ever figured it out? Like, what is the dollar figure you need to secure your future? Do you know what the answer is? More than you currently have. (laughs) And that will always be the answer, no matter. Every time you get to that, whatever line it is, the line's going to move on you every single time. And I'm not against savings accounts or retirement. I have all of those. Proverbs actually teaches us in the house of the wise are storehouses. We need to save. We just don't put our hope into our savings. We don't put hope into retirement. We don't believe finances can ever make us secure. This is the very reason poor people outgive rich people on every level when you talk about statistics and percentages. Here's the truth. Proverbs says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall. You put your hope in money, it'll always let you down. It'll never protect you. It'll never make you secure. But the righteous, people who put their trust in God, will thrive like a green leaf. I don't know if you've ever read Steve Jobs' memoirs, the founder of Apple, right before he died. In some of his writing, one of the things he talks about is his biggest regret in life was believing the fantasy that somehow money could prolong his life that money could create a better quality of life for him. The more money he had, the the greater quality of life he could have. And he talks about how foolish that idea was as he tragically died at a very young age, realizing his money didn't have the ability to save him. You see, our security is in God and God alone, not money. Hebrews puts it like this, keep your lives free from the love of money. Money is not evil. It's the love of money, the Bible says, is evil. And be content with what you have. And, and I love this. One of the most famous verses in the Bible that we love to quote, but, but we, never, we never really get the context. It's actually a verse about money. Even though it's one of the most famous verses in the Bible, he says, don't, don't love money. Be content. Here's why. I'll never leave you, and I'll never forsake you. You have something more valuable than money. You've got me. It goes on to say, so we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I'm not going to be afraid. I don't, need, I don't need to fear this financial crisis. I don't need to fear this getting laid off at work. I don't need to fear any of that. Why? Because God's never going to leave me, and God's never going to forsake me. So I don't need money to be my confidence. What can mere mortals do to me? Here, here's the next lie of mammon. Money will make me significant. If I have money, I'll be important. I'll feel important. People, people will look up to me the more money I have. See, Mammon, Mammon talks to us and says, if you just have the right credit card, you know that little black one that everybody wants? Like if you have the right clothes, if you drive the right car, if you live in the right zip code, if your kids go to the right school, then you'll be accepted by the right people. Mammon says, if you just had more money, people would listen to you. You would be respect. Mammon entices us with money saying it'll help our image. So what do we do? We, we end up buying things we don't want with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. <laughs> and it's a cycle because of this, this love of mammon. Well, Jesus put it like this, beware. 
Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. It's not what it's about. And then here's, here's one of the, the last lies of mammon, and it's a big one. Money will make me happy. Like if I have money, I'll be happy. That's one of the biggest lies. If you had more money, you'd be happier. If you had more money, your marriage would be better. If you had more money, you could do whatever you wanted to do. How many know if this was true, if money made you happy, then rich people would be the happiest people on planet Earth. Have you ever hung out with rich people? They're not happy. Like, like they're, they're miserable. They're some of the most miserable people ever. There are some rich people that are happy, but it's typically the ones that know it's not their money, it's God's money, and they're just managing it for him. Most rich people are the most unhappy people ever. You see, people with money are plagued with discontentment. Like, like we're just, we're never, and I can prove it to you. I can prove it to you just on your level. Like, forget about rich people for a moment. Let's just think about you. Have you ever stood in front of a closet full of clothes? And first off, I want you to think about this. You actually have a room in your house just for clothes. (laughs) Like, you have a room in your house dedicated for just clothes. There are people that have one room for everything, like a family of eight, one room. That's it. You have a room just for clothes. Have you ever stood in front of that room just for clothes and made the statement, I have? See what I mean? We are plagued with discontentment. The accumulation of stuff creates an appetite. The medical term for it is stuffitis. Like you get stuffitis. You just want more stuff. And here's the symptom. The more a person has, the more he or she wants. It's never satisfied. Like the more you get, it doesn't satisfy the craving. It grows the craving. See, here's the truth. Again, the wisest person to ever live, the wealthiest person to ever live, Solomon, said those who love money will never have enough. Like if money's your goal, if money's your love, it'll never be enough. You'll, you'll never have enough. How absurd. Like how, how, how crazy. How crazy to think that wealth brings true happiness. You want to have real happiness in your life? It doesn't come from money. Here's what Paul says. Happy are those whose sins are forgiven. That's where happiness is found. Whose wrongs are pardoned. Happy is the person whom the Lord does not consider guilty. I'm telling you, when you receive the gift of forgiveness and you live your life without shame and you live your life knowing you're forgiven and righteous and under God's grace, there is a joy that money can't buy when you know you're forgiven. It's powerful. So how do we overcome these lies? Well, you know, again, it's all about the truth. The truth is money is spiritual. It's spiritual So what we need to do is we need a new spirit on our money because the spirit that rests on money is confusing. It's confusing, and it creates financial strongholds and financial struggles and financial issues. We need a new spirit on money. Even if you have money and you don't have financial problems, a lot of people have money. They're just not happy because the money's not satisfying. Why? Because there's a financial stronghold where they think money is going to make them happy, and it's a lie. What you need, whether you're wealthy or whether you're struggling, is a new spirit on your money. So the question is, how do I get God's spirit on my money? Well, we got to replace the lies with God's truth. Now, let me warn you right now. I'm going to be incredibly bold today. I'm not going to hold back. And I know you think, well, weren't you bold last week? Because I've never heard a message like that in church. (laughs) Yeah, I was bold last week. 
But I've taught this before, but I'm going to teach it with a new level of boldness today because I am, I am, I'm, I'm tired of money being the number one prayer request. I'm tired of people living in a financial stronghold. I'm tired of people being financially blind and confused in this area. And I want to see a breakthrough because I believe God has blessing for you in this area this year. I believe God wants to do something in your business, in your finances, in your family, in your career this year like never before. And so I'm going to be incredibly bold. And I can teach this with absolute authority because we have designed and built our church on not needing money. Let me put it like this. Every year, we intentionally set our budget well below what we believe the income will be so that we are not financially stressed. And I am never in a position to stand up here on a weekend and need money from you. Like right now, as a church, we are living off of about 70% of the giving. Our operational budget is right about 70% of what is given is what we're using to operate this church on. And the reason we do it that way is so that we can build, we can grow, we can expand. We're doing a $9 million construction project right now as a church. And if you've noticed, there's no campaign. There's no fundraiser. We're not asking for any pledges or any commitments. When does a church do a building without a capital campaign? We do that because we want to be very wise with the money. We live beneath our means, so we're not in need. Now, what I do not want you to hear or feel today, don't don't hear this, well, they must be doing fine, so they don't need me. No, (laughs) that's not the case. We need you to be involved because even though we don't have any needs right now, we've got $20 million worth of vision right now. And that's not a made up number. I can articulate exactly where it would go to today if we had $20 million. We're just not going to do it until God provides it. And see, in Bible college, they teach you to do the exact opposite. They teach you to, to go out and get yourself in a bunch of debt and then pressure the people to pay it off. We're not going to do that. We've got vision. We can do a lot more than what we're currently doing today. So we've got the vision to do more. We're just not going to outpace your giving. So don't hear something I'm not saying. You need this for you more than anything, because there's a stronghold in America that's confusing people. Let's look at it. Malachi puts it like this. I, the Lord, do not change. So let me, let me be very clear. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. I know people get hung up over the God of the Old Testament because they think he's mean and ugly. He's not mean and ugly. The God of the Old Testament is full of grace, slow to compassion, abounding in mercy. You see it everywhere. The places that confuse you, just consider for a moment you're reading it through a filter of 2020, and you're not reading it in context of the time period it was written to really understand what's happening. The God of the Old Testament was just as full of grace as the God of the New Testament. If I had time, I could walk you through that. God does not change. Yes, we are not under the law anymore, but what I want you to understand about God's law is God's law is the greatest advice you will ever live your life by. God's law isn't just law, it's principle. It's good advice. Like, for example, it's good advice for you not to murder anybody. That's good advice for you. Why? Because you got to spend most of your life in prison, which sucks. Like, you don't want to live your life on earth in prison. That would suck. So it's really good advice for you not to murder anybody. Do you understand what I'm saying? The law is not bad. The law is good advice. We don't serve the law for salvation. We're not under the law. We're under grace. But being under grace, grace will never lead you to violate the law. So let's just be clear about that. Grace is never going to lead you to murder anybody. Grace is never going to lead you to commit adultery. Grace will never lead you to steal. Grace will never lead you to violate the law. So let's just be clear about that. God doesn't change. So so the law that he gave is still the best advice you will ever live your life by. 
So he goes, ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decree. So I've given you these principles, these unbelievable principles. And when you follow my principles, there's life and there's peace. When you go against my principle, there's strongholds, there's bondage. It's not fun. But when you, when, you, when, you, when you adhere to the principles I've given you, there's life, there's peace, and you have not kept them, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? How, like, where have we walked away from your principles? Where have we stopped doing what's best for us? Will a mere mortal rob God? So he says, you're stealing from me. You're robbing from me. That, that, that's what you're doing wrong. You're robbing from me. Yet you robbed me, but you ask, how are we robbing it? And here's how they were doing it, in tithes and offerings. They were robbing God in tithes and offerings. You're under a stronghold. That's what a curse is. A curse is a stronghold. God was not cursing them, by the way. God does not curse you. If you don't tithe, God will not curse you at all. Jesus took the full curse of God on the cross. God doesn't curse, but how many know we can believe a lie and put ourselves under a curse? Like if you're addicted to pornography, that's a curse on your life, right? I mean, I mean that, that, that's a struggle. That, that, that's a challenge. That's a curse. And, and, and the addiction comes from I believe the lie somewhere, and so I put myself into this stronghold. I put myself into this bondage. And so they walked away from this decree, and as a result of walking away from God's principle, they put themselves under a curse. They put themselves in a stronghold. They put themselves into a financial mindset that is confused and it's a lie. He says, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe. And the word tithe is the Hebrew word maser. It means 10% or the first 10% into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. The tithe always belongs in God's house. Why? Because this is where you're spiritually fed. This is where the food comes from. Your spiritual nourishment comes out of your local church. Test me. Now, every other place in the Bible, it says, don't do this. Don't test God. Don't test God. Don't test God. Don't put God to the test. The only place in the entire Bible it gives you permission to test him is in the area of money. And, and he, I, believe, I believe this is the reason. This is the, one of the only areas in your Christian faith you can actually see in black and white. Like you, you can see God's hand in a spreadsheet. You know, you can see, you know, do it for 12 months. At the end of the year, you will be able to see in black and white that this decree works. Like, like you'll see it for yourself in black and white on a spreadsheet. I believe that's why God gives us permission to test him in the area because it's so evident. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed. And that's my goal. My goal is to get you to a place where people around you say, man, that person is blessed. There, but look at their marriage. Look at their children. Look, look, at, look at the peace on their home. Look at their family. They're, they're, just, they're, they're blessed. For yours will be a delightful land. Your neighbors love coming to your house because it's a delightful land. There's a, there's a spirit of peace and rest and tranquility in your home, says the Lord Almighty. This is God's plan to redeem our money. This is God's plan to deal with the financial stronghold in this area of our life. Redeem it from what? The lie. The lie, the mindset of this world, the, the lies of the spirit of man. And this is how we operate as a church. And let me give you the three things we have to do to replace the lie with the truth, to break this stronghold in our life. Number one is we've got to return the first. Return the first. That's what you're doing right now, by the way. 
I don't, know if you, I don't know if you've realized that or not. You gave God the first day of the week before you went to work. Like, God, I'm going to give you the first before I do anything else for me. You get the first day. The first day is your day. So I give you the first, then I'll go to work. That's what we do with our income. The first 10% of all of our income, of everything we receive, of everything we earn, belongs to God. That's why we use the word return and not give. You cannot give your tithe to God. The reason you cannot give your tithe to God is because it's his. You can't give to him what's already his. All you can do is return it to him. That's why every time in the Bible you read this, it's bring or it's return because it is the Lord's. And the question was, why doesn't God just keep it? Like, why does, why does he just keep it? Why does he need me to return it? Because he wants to test our heart. He wants to know what spirit you're living under. He, he wants you to choose. He wants you to decide, do you want to be under the spirit of mammon or do you want to be under the spirit of God? You, Jesus said you can't serve both. So you can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. It's mammon or it's God, but it's one or the other. So, so how do we do it? We return the first. The way it works is when I return the first 10% to God, the other 90% is redeemed from the spirit of mammon so it's taken out from under the spirit of mammon, and now the spirit of God comes upon it. This is exactly why if you talk to any tither in our church, they'll tell you 90% of your money with the spirit of God on it will always accomplish more than 100% of your money with the spirit of mammon on it. Every single time. Every single time. 90% with God's spirit will always do more than 100% with the spirit of mammon. But it's our way to honor God and put him first. Deuteronomy puts it like this. Be sure to set aside a tenth, 10% of all that your fields produce each year so that you may learn to revere the Lord. You may learn to honor him. You may learn to, to put him first in your life always. Always. Now, again, the argument that I always get was tithing's under the law. It's Old Testament. Well, look, again, let's, let's play that out. Stealing's under the law. It's still wrong. Murder's under the law. It's still wrong. Adultery's under the law. It's still wrong. Now, we don't, we don't tithe under the law to earn God's salvation. We tithe because it's a principle that works. We tithe under grace. We don't tithe under the law. But the reality is tithing is not under the law. Tithing predates the law. Tithing goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. Abraham tithed years before the law was given. Isaac tithed. Jacob, in Genesis 28, uh, Jacob wrestles with God all night. At the end of the wrestle, he says, "In this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give. Now, this word in Hebrew is actually bring. I will bring you a tenth. So out of everything you give me, I'm going to bring you a tenth. I'm going to bring it. God's house, I bring you a tenth out of everything that you give me. Like, what if, what if Jesus told us to tithe in the New Testament? Like, I know that, like, there's a lot in the Old Testament about tithing, and that's where people get hung up. But let me ask you a question. What if Jesus in the New Testament said you should tithe? Would you do it? Like, if in the red letters themselves, Jesus said you should tithe, would you do it? I know many Christians today that would still argue, that would still wrestle, that would still struggle with it, even if Jesus said it. Well, in Matthew 23, 23, Jesus said, you should tithe. Yes. Jesus said, this is good for you. Like, you should do this because it's going to bless you. You should do this because it's a, it's a principle that my dad set up that will bring blessing and favor on your life. So you absolutely should do it. Hebrews 7 gives us the greatest thought about tithing in the New Testament. Hebrews 7 says that when we physically tithe on earth, this is the coolest thought. Jesus in heaven personally receives your tithe when you tithe on earth. 
Like in heaven, he spiritually, because money is spiritual, he spiritually receives your tithe every time you tithe on earth. The question is, why do we fight it? I've been in full-time ministry now for 26 years. Every time I teach this message, I have two groups of people that come and talk to me, and they have two different stories, two different testimonies. And this is what I hear every single time. I have a group of tithers in our church. They come to me, and this is their testimony. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Every time, I'm blessed. And all the tithers who are here today said, I didn't prep that. Go talk to them. You heard them say amen. They know this to be true. And yet, every time I have another group in our church of non-tithers, and their testimony is always the same, I can't afford to tithe. You got two testimonies to choose from. I can't afford to tithe. I can't afford to tithe. I can't. Let me be honest with you. You're never going to be able to afford to tithe till you tithe. Tithing is what breaks the stronghold. Tithing is what breaks the curse. You're never going to be able to afford to do it. There is a supernatural element to the Christian faith. It's never going to work out on paper, but it'll always work out. Tithing is what redeems. Paul put it like this. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of income, a sum of money in keeping with your income. And it, what that means is it's not equal giving, it's equal sacrifice. The tithe is 10% for everyone, no matter how much money you make. So you can make $10 a week or a million dollars a week. It doesn't matter. It stays the same. It's, it, it's in keeping with your income. It's not keeping with your neighbor's income. It's keeping with your income so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. And that's how we built our church. If you've noticed, we don't collect money here. Like There's not a point in our church service where we pass around buckets. I'm not against that. Other churches do it. Fine with it. We just have decided we're not going to collect money. I just believe you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income and have it prepared to give. And that's what our church does. And that's why we're able to build. That's why we're able to grow. That's why God has positioned us. And so let me be very strong right now and say, if you have ever struggled with money, if this is an issue, if if there's challenges in that area, you know, whether it's you have money and you're not happy and you can't figure out why you're not happy, you're not satisfied, or whether you're struggling with money, I challenge you to put God to the test. Tithe for one year and see if it works. Just do it for one year and see if it works. And if you feel at all that I am manipulating you in any way, like I'm putting any undue pressure on you, then, then I plead with you, go to another church for three months and tithe there to prove that this works. I'm passionate about this for your sake. So if you believe that I'm manipulative in any way, then you take three months off from Coastline, you go sit in another church tied to that church, and you prove that this principle works because you will see God show up in your life in a powerful way. Put him to the test. Here's the second point, steward the rest. We return the first, we steward the rest. It's clear in scripture, God blesses those who manage well. So the first 10% we return, then we manage the other 90% for God. So some of you need to take the second challenge and put yourself on a budget. I know you don't like Mr. Budget because he's mean. (laughs) Mr. Budget tells you no. But spending money without a budget is like driving a car without gauges. Imagine driving a car without any gauges. Are you, how much gas do you have? No idea. Don't have a gauge. <laughs> and yet that's how so many people spend money. No, we honor God with the first, and then we manage the rest. That's how God's spirit rests on it. This is how we manage our church. 
We, we, every, every year, our team calls utility companies and they renegotiate our rates to try to save money. They call AT&T and our cell phone service and our internet service, and they're always trying to renegotiate to save money, to cut costs, because we want to manage the other 90, but we get first 10% away, and then we manage the other 90 well, and all of us should. Again, the wisest person ever lived says the plans of the diligent, do, do you know what a financial plan is? It's called a budget. A budget is a plan for your money. So people who have budgets, they have profit. Budgets lead to profit as surely as haste, the person who just spends without a budget, leads to poverty. So I'm talking to some of you today, and I know I'm talking to some of you about this. And so if you need an action step, join a financial small group today. You know, go talk to our team, get in a group, get some help, figure this out, whether you've got a lot of money and you don't know what to do with it or whether you're struggling with money or whether you're in debt, doesn't matter. Get in a group and get some wisdom in this area. And then finally, and most importantly, focus on true riches. This is the most important thing I've learned as a Christian. Jesus taught a very powerful parable about this. Jesus said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. You have a rich guy who gets richer. You have a guy with extra who now has extra, extra. He, he, he's, he's, he's got a lot. Now he has even more. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store all of my crops, in which everybody in the audience would have had so much sympathy on this guy and felt so bad for him because he's got this huge problem in life because he's got all this money and he just made even more money and he, and he doesn't even have enough place to store it all, right? Like you got sympathy for this guy, right? No, none of us do. Um, so this is the story. So he's got this challenge, but he's a smart guy. He's a problem solver. He comes up with a plan and he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll big, build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus of grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, if Jesus stopped right here, everybody in the audience would have loved this story. They would have all wanted their children to hear it. Son, he's teaching about retirement. He's teaching about saving. He's teaching about investments. He's teaching about setting yourself up for the future. You need to listen to this. Take notes. This is a great parable. They all would have loved him. They believed that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. The Old Testament clearly teaches that we should prepare for the future and save. But Jesus is the master storyteller. And he throws a curveball. He, 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 he goes a completely different direction than anybody would have imagined. But God said to him, you fool! You fool! To which everybody in the audience would have been shocked and confused. What do you mean he's a fool? This is a wealthy guy. He's got God's blessing and he's a problem solver. He, he found a way to save more and prepare for retirement and set himself up for the future. Why is God calling him a fool? God doesn't call him a fool for being rich. Let me be clear, God is not against rich people. God loves rich people. God was calling him a fool because he did not know what to do with his riches. You see, it was God that gave him the extra extra. So why is he a fool? Well, we go on. Jesus said, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. You see, the problem is he thought like many of us. He thought like Steve Jobs thought. Wait a second, my time can't be up. 
Look how much money I have. I can't run out of time before I run out of money. I mean, I've saved up for years to come. I've prepared. I'm financially secure. I've got a retirement. Isn't there a correlation between my wealth and my time? I can't run out of time before I run out of money. And God says, you fool. You lived with this idea that everything was there for you. This assumption that it was there for your consumption. Now your life is being taken and your opportunity is gone. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Who's going to get it all? And the answer is somebody else. Somebody else is going to enjoy it all. Not because he was generous, because he's dead. See, he had only focused on the short term, things that were going to happen on earth. He didn't have eyes for the long term planning, the things that are happening in heaven. This is a really important insight. When you read through the Bible, Jesus is clear on this point. We don't get credit for what we leave. We get credit for what we give. You don't get credit for what you leave behind. Well, I put it in a charitable trust. You don't get credit for it. You don't get credit for it. You only get credit for what you give. And here's the reason this is true. Everybody on earth, no matter how much money you have, is going to leave the exact same amount when you die, all. Everybody is going to leave all. So of course there's no credit for what we leave because everybody leaves everything. At this point, Jesus is so smart. He, he pulls out of the parable. They're all confused. They're, he just messed up their whole paradigm. Like they think it's a really good story about saving, investing, retirement. And then all of a sudden he throws this curveball. They're all confused. He pulls out and he speaks right to their heart and he applies it to their life. And what I want you to do right now is I want you to imagine Jesus is standing here. And you're in the crowd, and he just gets done telling this story, and he's about to apply it personally to you. He's about to speak to your heart about your situation. This is how it will be. And I'm talking to you personally right now. With anybody, anybody who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. This is how it's going to be. For anybody here today, right now, who is storing up things for yourself but is not being rich toward God. See, if Jesus could be your financial advisor for one day, you'd sit down with him and you'd want to talk about your money on earth, how you're saving, how you're investing, how you're handling it. Jesus would want to talk about your treasure in heaven. Like, what are you investing into heaven right now? If you go down to the end of chapter 12, not in your notes, he says, sell your possessions, give to those in need. This will store up treasures for you in heaven. It's how you invest in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. There's no stock market crash in heaven. You never have to fear about your investments falling in heaven or, or being, being undercut in heaven. No thief will ever be able to steal from any of your investments in heaven. No moth can destroy it. Moss in this time period could literally wipe out an estate of valuable goods that people had. Wherever your treasure is, there your desires of your heart will also be. In other words, your heart follows your money. If you want a heart for God, put your money in the house of God. And all of a sudden, you, 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 your heart will begin to become very interested in the things of God. You want a heart for missions? Give money to missions. And all of a sudden, you become very passionate about missions. I mean, think about it. 
There is stock that you have never checked before in your life, but now that you got some money in it, you check it just about every day, don't you? Like all of a sudden, you're very interested in how that company's doing on the stock market because you got money there. You didn't care about the company before. You only started caring when your money went there. Your, your heart follows your money. And so if you have a financial stronghold going on in your life, maybe you've bought into one of the lies, maybe you thought that being successful and achieving would, would, would make you feel happy and significant, and here you are, you're more successful than you ever imagined, more successful than your parents have ever been, and yet you're just not satisfied, you're, you're not happy. You're like, what'd I do it all for? Like, it just didn't work. Or maybe you're struggling, or maybe you're, you're trying to figure something out and you've been challenged and plagued with just financial difficulties. Whatever it is, I want to pray over you today, and we're going to break the lie of mammon on your life. The lies that you have believed, the lies that have turned into strongholds. Would you close your eyes with me for a moment? If you would like to receive this prayer with every eye closed, just, just lift up a hand to God. Just lift up a hand to God and say, I want to receive this over my life today. Father, in the name of Jesus, I stand here today and I break the lie of mammon in these people's life. People that have bought into the lies of mammon, the, the financial stronghold, the financial lies that have affected so many people. We break that right now in the name of Jesus. And God, I pray your Holy Spirit will reveal truth, God, to them. And God, we will test you with our money. We will test to see whether or not you are God, and we will honor your decrees so that there may be life and peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me?